Welcome back to another MicroConf Refresh episode. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and in this episode, you're going to hear a conversation between me and MailChimp co-founder Ben Chestnut. This happened just a few weeks ago in Atlanta at our MicroConf local event there, which was a great event. We had good turnout, and just a great group of founders showed up for that. And during that time, Ben Chestnut and I sat down, talked for about half an hour, and the sound quality is a, a bit dicey on this one. We were in a venue where that's just what happened. We were recording over wireless mics, and sometimes that happens. But my hope is that the, the content of the conversation and to hear Ben's wisdom just seeping onto the page, so to speak, uh, is definitely worth the listen. I had a great time doing this. I had never met Ben Chestnut in person, even though, as you'll listen, he and I have emailed many times over the years around microconf and drip and all manner of topics, but it's a super interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Let's dive in. Competition for great talent is more challenging than ever. Almost every startup I know struggles to hire fast enough to keep up with demand. In order to hire faster, you need a trusted source of pre-vetted candidates. Lemon.io is that source. They have an extensive network of engineers from Europe and Latin America, and every candidate has been tested and interviewed by their team. You're probably wondering, how is this different from hiring on your own? Number one, you can have an engineer who can start working within a week instead of months. Number two, you don't waste your time on unqualified candidates. Number three, you'll have easy access to global talent without going through dozens of job boards. And number four, it's more affordable than hiring local talent. So if you need to expand your engineering team or delegate some of your engineering work, use Lemon.io. We have a special discount for fans of MicroConf. Visit Lemon.io slash MicroConf to receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of working with a developer. That's Lemon.io slash MicroConf. And on my left, Mr. Ben Chestnut. Can we give him a warm MicroConf welcome? It's great to have you here, man. It's been years we've been talking about meeting. Is this thing on? Is this working? Yeah. All right, great. So yeah. glad the stars finally aligned. I, I am too. So yeah, I start, the dirty little secret is I started emailing Ben somewhere around, let's say, 2012, 2013, because he's a bootstrap SaaS founder. And I just, you know, I wouldn't see him on podcasts. He didn't, you weren't speaking at events. You were working on your business, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I stumbled across a video of Steve Jobs telling everybody the secret to his success was he told everyone no. Mm. And that's so. Yeah, yeah, I just told you no. Absolutely. <laughs> but, focus. But you, but you told it to me very respectfully, and you always said, "I'm working on my business. I can't do it this year." Or in one year, you tried, and you were like, "It happened to be my uh, my anniversary day with your wife, yeah. right?" Yeah. And so I always appreciated that, R rather than we email some folks and they just never respond, you know. And I always appreciated that courtesy. And even when so. Dirty little secret, I started Drip, right? Competed with MailChimp, didn't, didn't compete didn't with MailChimp, to be honest. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? He's still inviting me. Oh, okay. Yeah, guy. We could do that. Yeah. Always had mad respect for MailChimp, though. And even in our marketing where we, we ragged on Infusionsoft and Marketo and Pardot, never once did we disparage MailChimp because I appreciated the business, I appreciated um, just how you ran the company, you know? So it's great and to have you. That's why I'm here today. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Finally, I think in one of your your emails you said, "Oh, is it microconf o'clock already?" You're emailing me again to annoy me. I was like, "That's clutch, man. That's way to do that." So Ben, you got to take me back to what 2000, 2001, 2002. Right. You're a designer. You're running a design agency. You're in your 20s. Mm. Dot com crash happens. You get laid. You get laid off, and you start the agency. Is that what yes, happens? That's right. And working then, for a corporation and got laid off. Yes. Okay. And a lot of us did back then. The dot com crash was, was rough. Um, 
so how does MailChimp start? You're not a developer. Did you have a co-founder who's a developer? I had a co-founder who was a developer. It started because a few years prior to that, we had another app that we thought was going to make us rich. Uh, it sent email greetings. It was going to be a greetings card site. Uh, and it, that one didn't take off. Uh, and so it was basically a failure. But when we started our agency, we noticed a bunch of our small business clients needed help with email marketing. They paid us by the hour to use another piece of software that was crap. It was for the enterprise. It was very difficult to use. And then I realized, wait, if we just took the scrap code from our failure and just built our own, it would make my life a whole lot easier. And it was really just scrap code really for me. And I was still building our customers by the hour to use my own software. I was just going in and copy-pasting their content and sending the emails. Uh, and then just over time, you know, they would send me $50 checks $100 checks for my one hour of copy pasting. And I got so tired of going to the bank with the stack of $50 checks. Like I would run out of the deposit slips and I'd have to get out of my car and go in to pick up deposit slips. And I was like, nobody's got time for that. Let's make a credit card billing system so that my customers can just use it themselves. And that was like an early precursor of SaaS. It was self-service application. Yeah. So that's how MailChimp was born. Like, luck and my laziness. It's <laughs> no, no. often how it goes. So if we flash forward 20-ish years, you sell this, these humble beginnings for $12 billion to Intuit. Right. And as far as I know, it is the largest bootstrapped exit ever in recorded history, folks. So one, you know, one thing on the podcast and, and when I'm speaking, I often say is everyone sells. And Maybe not everyone, everyone, but pretty much everyone sells. And MailChimp and Basecamp are always the two examples I used of folks who didn't sell. And now all I have is Basecamp. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, now yeah. at the time. Because well, honestly, you know, what, what happens? Yeah, what happens? It, it eventually runs out. Like I, when I started Drip, I didn't think I was going to sell. And eventually something happens and either your life changes or someone puts a check in front of you that's like, well, I grew up making 450 an hour. Like this is, uh, I never have to work again. You know, there, there's different motivations, right? I haven't heard you talk yet about why you decided to sell MailChimp. Uh, it's, it's one of those things you don't really understand it until it happens to you. And that's basically you get old. <laughs> that's it. So I <laughs> got a couple of laughs out of that. Uh, <laughs> so, but, but it started years ago. Somebody tried to acquire us, and I just said, no, this is my, this is my baby. I will never sell this company. And he was very respectful to me, and he said, you know, I, I – I understand. You'll change your mind down the road. When you do, can you give me first dibs? Uh, and I said, you know, and I respected him for that too, but I just thought, what makes you so certain? You know, uh, I've told you no multiple times before, by the way. Why do you think this is going to happen inevitably? And he just said, you know, you reach a point of your life where, you know, you're, the startup defines you. It is who you are. And then you get to an age where it's just something you do. You love it just as much, but you realize it's kind of a job, and it's not who you are. You, you have other aspects of your life. Maybe you become a father, you know, husband, whatever. It's just another facet of your life, not your entire life. It sounds crazy and hokey, but it is real. And then when you reach your 40s, this is the real thing that starts to happen. Family dies. Friends start to die. Friends, old classmates, and you think about life differently. 
This is why people normally don't ask me that at the beginning of mm -hmm. meetings. <laughs> kind of dark and sad. Yeah. But, but it's the uh, reality. It's reality. Right? Like you said, it, it always it ends up happening to everybody. Yeah. I mean, and if there are people out there who cling until their old age, I don't think they're very happy, to be honest with you. That means that they really literally are defining themselves as their business. That's not healthy, it seems like to me. Yeah, not for too long, right? You can do yeah. it. For, I always thought of it as seasons. Like I can work... 60-hour weeks for three months, six months, nine months, but I didn't want to do that for 10 years, right, especially as I had a family. I'm curious, like, as you were growing MailChimp, maybe there were seasons for you, but did you keep a pretty decent 40-hour work week, work-life balance type mindset, or were you just, a, you know, a, a kind of driving really hard at the beginning and then it eased up? You know, if I, if I can go back and look at my life, I'm so proud. I have no regrets. I, I never sacrificed time with family. Mm. Um, there's Randy Zuckerberg said something like, like friends, family, health, like, and then she had like two more and then she said, pick three, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I basically picked my health and my family mm -hmm. and that was it. So, and, and I'm so glad that that's what I did. I, I dropped, I have a balanced life because I dropped friendships, uh, vacationing, mm -hmm. all the fun things in life. <laughs> I dropped it and I just focused on family and my business. That's that's really in line. Like I did it for a couple years and not anywhere near at the pace you did, but I stopped all my hobbies. Like I played Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. Was I collect comic yes. books, yep. but I didn't do any of that for yes. like a five year span. Yes. And, and also friendships, unfortunately. Yes. My coworkers became my friends, um, that, which is that, maybe not it's not the healthiest thing in the, yeah, in the world. So. Actually, we got a little further along in business. This is like five years ago. I went to one of my kids' birthday party, his friend's birthday party, and I met some other dads. And th they were like, asking me to hang out with them and do stuff. And I remember, like, saying, I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went home and visited my dad because I never sacrificed family. And, you know, my dad, he was, like, 78 or something. And I was like, Dad, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't know what I do. And he was like, you always like bikes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cycling, I'll do that. And I got back into cycling with my buddies. So mountain biking, road, road biking, anything yeah. with pedals I love. But, yeah, you just, you just have to sacrifice stuff. Yeah. Yeah. My startup founder friends, I was in a mastermind and we used to call, um, when we go hang out with just regular people, we call them normies cause they're normal <laughs> <laughs> at that, that three of us would cluster and be like, okay, so your MRR, Ooh, you got a churn problem, huh? All right, well let's talk. Cause you think it's involuntary, you know, we go through this and then someone else would come up and we totally try to talk to them, but they would say, man, I really hate my job. My boss is such a jerk, you know? And it was like, I can't resonate. This doesn't resonate yeah. with me. Right. Yeah. I, it was this gap between that. They have like paid time off. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Vacations. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I want to ask you, you know, as a, as a bootstrap founder, obviously, and I, I know you get asked this a lot, um, but venture funding is a thing. Venture funding was a thing when you were launching. Yeah. You never took funding. Curious, um, A, why not? And B, what your sentiment is on, on venture and even the more, you know, there's the alt funding that's coming up, like the tiny seeds where it's more bootstrapper friendly or yeah. friends and family rounds that don't expect you to, to become a billion dollar. So that was like four questions. Let's start with one. Um, you didn't take venture. Did you have the choice and turn it down or it just wasn't an option? I had choices and I turned them down. Uh, VCs came, this, this was 2006, 2007-ish, by the way. And those were the early years. I was a stubborn, competitive SOB. I didn't know anything about venture capital or anything, but they would come in and say, we gave this much money to your competitors. If you don't take our money too, they're going to put you out of business. 
And I was like, the hell you will. You know, <laughs> you know, challenge accepted. And I was just stubborn that way. And that was why I never took money in the very early days. And they were formulaic. They were like, if you take this money, you maybe could go public like this competitor of yours. And I just remember thinking, what if I don't want to follow your template? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the main reason why I said no in those early years. Over time, we started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they really started to come knocking on our door, flying to Atlanta. Everybody says, VCs don't come to Atlanta. They came all the time. Um, by then, we were just too big. I mean, we, we were making money hand over fist. Um, and anytime they'd say, you know, take these tens of millions, I couldn't figure out what I'd do with it above and beyond what I was already doing. Um, and so, and really, the only thing they could really pitch was they'll put in place new professionals who could spend the money that we give you. <laughs> no. Sounds you fun. Know? So that was... And then over time, we got really, really big, and the VCs, we were later stage, and private equity people started to come from the bigger firms, and they were just more like asking me how my health was. They were like waiting for me to keel over so that they could take over the business. Wow. So yeah, and I was like, I would, tell, I would end the meetings, like when I wanted them to go home, I would be like, give me your business card, I'll put it in my safe, if I die, my wife will call you. And they were like, here you go. And then, you know, that's, that, was, that was how you know, it started to end. Yeah. Wow. When, when you sold uh, to Intuit $12 billion, I believe we were doing about a, a billion in ARR? We were creeping up on a billion in ARR. The okay. pandemic kind of slowed us down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Which is interesting. Well, yeah, I'll get back to the pandemic. Cause, um, but uh, with, a, with a billion in ARR, do you remember how many employees you had? Yeah, 1,200 full-time, okay. 1,400 total. Yeah, so there, there was a little. Well, yeah, I can imagine that. Um, I think when I'm managing more than about ten or fifteen people, I get overwhelmed. So I cannot imagine twelve hundred. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big number. Um, okay, so oh yeah, the, I guess the second question. That's that's you know whether you or why you decided not to take venture. Do you have opinions on venture in general? Do you think it's a like a net positive? Um, for I, the, I, I, I don't think it's positive or negative. I think you call it a tool. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tool as well. Some companies need it, some don't. I, I tell some founders that MailChimp kind of lucked out. We were at the beginning of multiple waves that gave us so much momentum and allowed us to just grow without VC. It was the beginning of SaaS. That was new. Focusing on small business was radically new. We were doing all of those things at once. Nobody cared about email, so it was like a blue ocean for us to just – go with no competition for many years. That allowed me to not have to take funding. Now, like you said, SaaS is harder than ever. It's just flooded. There's so many people who can do it now. You know, you don't have to figure out billing. You just use Stripe. <laughs> In my day. <laughs> uh, but like, so that means it's wonderful, but it means so many people are in it and it's unbelievably competitive now. So I would take funding now. And the, looking back... Knowing what I know now about, you know, investing, now I'm sort of, I invest in funds of funds that invest in those VCs who would come knocking. Hmm. I know, I know a little bit about it and I know it's a game. And if you're going to do it, make sure you understand that game because now you're going to be playing two games, the funding game and your business. And the business is hard enough, man. Business can take a lifetime to master. Now you're playing two, it's like 3D chess, you know? Just make sure you know that game. And I would say start off by asking, where's the money coming from? Just ask, where does it start? Yeah, it's a good way to think about it. And that's why I'm glad 
funds like Tiny Seed exist, right? As an as an in between, honestly, I'm giving a like a jokey plug, but that was one of the things that as I was bootstrapping SaaS, I really wanted some funding. I didn't want millions, but a half million dollars would have made my life a lot easier. Potentially, could I have would I have you know grown the company for longer? Yeah, maybe. Um, especially if I've been able to take a little bit off the table. And so, um, yeah, the advent of kind of the alt funding or the, you know, the um, indie funding, as, as we're calling it, mm -hmm. I think is a, hopefully a net win for the ecosystem. I wish it was around when we started. Yeah, yeah. right? For, yeah, yes. more bootstrapper friendly where it's like it doesn't come with the strings attached. It's not an implied Series A. Bryce Roberts says implied Series A and that it isn't. There, there's several of the, you know, these things yeah. creeping up that I think are it would good be for like us. tens of millions, and I, like I said, like what are you going to do with that? I would need like half a million. Give me half a million for something, yeah. but you know, dump twenty million on me. I'm going to make up shit to spend it on. Right, and, and that's what why. That's what we see with you know Bolt and and um, was it oh, Fast right. and Bolt or whatever. You know the ecom right. where they give them so much money and they staff up. They have yeah. a couple hundred k ARR and they're six hundred employees or so. I mean it's just yeah. insane, yeah. right? Yeah, and they make a merchandise store, right? Video content, like yeah, making stuff up. Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to switch up a little bit. Um, my uh, my outside impression of Mailchimp and why you were so wildly successful compared to your competitors. You did a lot of things right. You did some great branding with with um, Freddie. Is that the yeah yeah, yeah Freddie yeah. Freddie the chimp? But I think my gut is, and maybe you've said this, or maybe it was just something I interpreted. There was a turning point in 2007 or 8 when you started freemium. That's right. You were the only one that made freemium work, as far as I know. Yes. Or at, at least at the scale that you did. And it was because we were bootstrapped, by the way. There's yeah. A big bootstrap story there. So tell me, tell me that story because I haven't heard it in depth of like, like why did you decide to do Freema? How did you make it work when no one else could? I know firsthand the spammers are nuts. We did freemium eventually, but we had, we kept a credit card gate in front, and I don't think yes. you did. Right. And you had ten, thousands of trials a day or something. That's I mean, right. just cr crazy. Ten thousand a day. Ten thousand yeah. trials a day. So t talk us through freemium. So so it is because we were bootstrapped. So I had competitors who took funding. Okay, so if you run an email company like Drip or Mailchimp. Spammers sign up, and it's a lot of work to find them and vet them and get them out of your system. Otherwise, they'll ruin your IP address reputation. So spam blocking is a big deal. All of my competitors who took funding, they were able to ramp up hiring very fast. So they would hire 200 people to sit there and just look at incoming accounts and say, spammer, not spammer, spammer, not spammer. We never had that money. Since I said no to the VCs so much, we had to come up with algorithms. We had to learn how to parse tons and tons of data fast. This is before AI and ML and big data and all that. This was, you know, we were one of the first people to buy like an NVIDIA graphic chip computer. I didn't, I didn't know. I just bought it for my engineer, Chad. He asked for it. And I was like, dude, take it. Do something with it. I called it the God box. It was so powerful. <laughs> you have the God box. And he used that. And we basically built algorithms to prevent spam before anybody. So then... That was good. It kind of sat there and kind of like it would run while we were sleeping, right? So now I wouldn't have to hire someone to, to run night shift spam blocking, abuse desk. So then fast forward like another year, we come up with this idea to launch freemium, basically let people use MailChimp for free. Thousands of people could sign up a day. You'd need thousands of people to sit there and block the spam. But since we had those algorithms, because we were so poor <laughs> and bootstrapped, you know, that frugality helped us um, be really innovative with that. And it, we, had, we were the only ones with the algorithm to block spam. And so when our competitors saw, 
it took a couple of years for them to see us eating into their margins. And then they were like really, really pissed at us. So they would launch freemium and they would get overrun by spammers. And we, we sort of watched them over the years and we said, there's like this theoretical limit of like a threshold of like 500 free. Whenever they would say, oh, you know, you can have 500 email addresses in your database for free. That was when they would fail. Uh, and we, we doubled ours to 1,000 free and then up to 2,000 free. Um, and it was all because of those algorithms. And as you know, purely coincidentally, if you read uh, PayPal Wars, same thing happened to them. If they had an algorithm that helped them prevent spam better than anybody else, and they just milked that for all it was worth. Yeah, omnivore. Was it? Was omnivore, it was omnivore was the name right? they gave it. Yeah. Yes, because yes, I think the FBI had something called carnivore. Mm-hmm. It was <laughs> yeah. extremely uh, controversial, obviously. Uh, and I just thought it's more badass to call it omnivore. I'll eat anything. Yeah. <laughs> it was silly, I but me- mostly stuff. if you shut down a user, I didn't want to say I shut you down. I wanted to say omnivore shut you down. We needed a name for something to throw under the bus. So you tripped the system. Yeah, the alarm. <laughs> That's great. And so yes. was that, yes. if, if you were to look at your MRR graph, was freemium making that work? Overnight. Ho- hockey stick. Yeah. It was ridiculous. And, and honestly, it was because we hired a guy... We were actually going to make, take our product and break it into two separate products. One half of it would be free. You would be able to build a list on your blog, get email signups for free. And then when you wanted to send them an email, that's when you would have to upgrade. And he needed to break the company, break the product into two. He worked on it for a year, and he came back and said, no can do. Your code is shit. I cannot cut this into two products. Best I can do is make everyone use the whole thing, but make it free for you know, 500 users or 500 recipients. And we were running up on deadline. Uh, you know, I, I was really strict. I, I needed to get this out by Christmas. Uh, that was our peak season. Um, and so I said, screw it, let's do it. And Freemium was born then, and I didn't have a name for it. Uh, and a guy, uh, what's his name, Charles Hudson, he called me up one day and he said, you know, I'm, I'm running this Freemium Summit. Mm-hmm. Would you like to speak? And like, I think, so... I, 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 we came up with this free plan. I called it the free plan. I wrote a blog post about it, and it was said, you know, the MailChimp free plan. I was ready to publish it the next day, went to sleep, came in the next morning. Somebody put a book on my desk called Freemium by Chris Anderson, and I read the back of it. To this day, I've never read that book. I read the back of it, and I was like, uh, hey, that's what we're doing. So I went to my blog draft, and I said, MailChimp goes freemium. That was the blog, and I made it live. And then that's when Charles Hudson saw my blog post, and he invited me to speak at his freemium summit. And there was some dude named Drew Houston there. He had started <laughs> this thing called Dropbox. Uh, you know, um, Phil Libin from Evernote was there. We were the like first five or six freemium companies. Mm. And we just kind of came in by accident. You know, mm-hmm. All of those were like West Coast companies. They knew the name for it and everything. They read the book, I guess. Yeah, um, <laughs> someone did. Well, and how do you how do you translate that then for you know bootstrappers in the room? Someone's doing 10k a month and they're in a space. How do you think about freemium? Because there's there's I think uh, some a mistake some early stage founders make is they look at Mailchimp and they say, well, that was their success, so I'm going to try it too, and then it winds up you know not yeah. working out. But how do you how do you think about it for new companies coming up? It helped us a lot because we focus on small businesses. And small business founders, they don't have that much money. They need time to trial stuff. And a lot of times they fail. Their businesses die. And then they go get a job. 
and then they realize, oh, that's how business works. And then they quit and they start up again and then they pay us. So the fact that we let them try it for free for like a year or two, that's a long sales cycle, you know, but we are, we had already had hundreds of thousands of users in the database because uh, we had gone for like nine years before we invented freemium, by the way. So we could kind of afford to have all these free users sit there for a year or two figuring things out. So anyways, it works really good for small businesses. I've seen people try to do it for enterprises. And when you're serving the enterprise, they want to pay. I mean, it's not even their money. It's their boss's 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 money. And they're using a credit card. They'll pay thousands. of. Sometimes the more you charge, the better. And if you try to do it free, they automatically think you're not legit. So it doesn't work for everybody. Uh, it would work really well for us with small business. And I, I guess for consumers. Although I think with consumers, they end up never paying. <laughs> well, I mean, there's the Netflix and the Spotify's, right? True. Yeah. I guess yeah. Netflix is not freemium and Spotify is. So that's interesting, right? Because Netflix mm. just has a trial. Right. Yeah. It's complicated. I've, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. The way I phrase freemium usually when I get asked about it is it's, I view it like a samurai sword. If you know what you're doing, you can do amazing things with it. And if you don't, you're going to chop your arm off. Oh, I like that. That's, you know, it's kind of like, like yeah, he's so, going to kill those shoes, the Bruce Lee shoes. Bruce Lee on brand. Yeah. <laughs> All right. A couple more questions and, and we'll wrap up. Um, I'm curious if there is one moment that you can think about. It doesn't need to be the worst moment, but a all of us have that catastrophic moment where I'll say you get the cease and desist, you uh, get overrun by spammers on a Sunday night, and uh, uh, I, I woke up Monday morning to that. Um, servers go down, whatever. There, are 20, 22 years. You remember some time where you were just like, oh my God, this is terrible. I don't want to do this anymore. And maybe the business is going to crater. Uh. Sorry to bring back PTSD on this one. <laughs> uh, so it would have to go back way back to the early days when mm -hmm. stuff like that. And that was the server crashes. Mm. Uh, I mean, we could never find a data center that could support millions of users. After we did freemium, I mean, nothing. Like, we were on Rackspace. We went to Voxel. We tried so many managed data centers, and all of them crashed. And there was one particular day when um, when – one server went down, and we weren't sure why. We had like 13 shards, um, and each shard had millions of users. And, and it went down, and we were like, why? What, what happened? Was it breached? And then another one went down, and we were like, oh, God. And then the third one and then the fourth one. That was a really bad Sunday morning. Um, and we had no idea what was going on. We couldn't get in. And when, Anyways, long story short, we learned that um, – there was just a hardware problem with these particular S SDD, solid state, SSD drives. We had switched to SSD, and the data center gave us the consumer version of SSD hard drives instead of the industrial version. So the time to failure was much less. It was, it was, the reason why they failed back to back was because it was a specific time to failure. Unbelievable. And just, they just wow. died in succession. And that was a time we were contacting customers how our own servers were down. How do I email them? Yeah. Uh, it was rough. We had put announcements on our website. And the thing was, I thought it was a hack. I thought it was a full-scale hack. And it was a time when a lot of our competitors were getting hacked. And I just thought they got us, too. They finally got mm. to us. But anyways, yeah, that I thought, That's that terrible. was the end of it. I yeah. Thought. And then, you know, and I had a really good COO at the time who told me, you know, if you look at the math with subscription SaaS companies, 
you're not going to like just plunge to your death. It's going to be a long, slow, embarrassing death. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, so you know, that was in some ways more horrifying to me. The shame of the, yeah. you know, but then also like, okay, well, we won't starve though. We'll know that it's coming, yeah. you know. So that kind of, after he said that many, many years ago, I kind of never, never worried again. Yeah. After that, it's more people issues. You know, people can can get to you. Yeah. <laughs> I love all the people at Mailchimp. I love them all. And <laughs> like learning to be a leader, you'll, you never get that opportunity like that. Mm-hmm. It's once in a lifetime and it's hard to actually leave that kind of a role too so and if you get the opportunity take it it's so fulfilling but at the same time i'm a product guy you know people they're not my forte yeah and uh it's it's yeah i, I told someone <laughs> something else i told someone a few weeks ago i said you know as a founder if you do build something successful whether you get it to 10 employees a thousand employees you have a job that no one would have hired you to have. Like you, yes. I would say if you had not built MailChimp, no one would have hired Ben Chestnut to run their 1200 person SaaS company. And right. same with me, like every company I've ever built to the top, it's like, you wouldn't hire me to run this, but I happen to be the founder. So I'm here. And so it's this concept. I mean, that, that's both amazing that you can do that as an entrepreneur. It's also really scary because you're maybe a little not qualified on paper right. and you have to learn those skills. Right? So, how did you go from being a designer running a small agency to, you know, basically, I mean, managing an org of 1,200 people doing a billion a year? Like, what was that? It's a, it's a big question, but I guess it's like, do you rely, did you have coaches? Did you read books? Did you have amazing, you have you had some good operators, I know, that took you to different points. Yeah. Like, how did you transition yourself? Because back in the day, you know, what's interesting is if you had raised venture in 2002, there's a chance they would have replaced you a few years oh, later. No, that was doubt. so common, right? Yes. And it wasn't until Facebook where he had the super voter shares or whatever that that kind of that yes. stopped and the founder stayed in. Yeah. But it's, chances are you would have been replaced. Um, Absolutely. And you weren't, and you were super amazing at growing the business. So how, you know, why do you think that is that you were able to, to learn those skills that you just didn't have back then? I, I absolutely read every book under the sun on leadership. Um, you know, books like Good to Great, that sort of stuff. But a lot of that stuff is sort of like airport leadership books. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're good, but, you know, read them on your flight and that's it. I, I had a crucible moment at one point. Um, I had a big all hands. I talk about it in every every podcast I've ever been interviewed in. It was extremely embarrassing how, how I led that uh, all hands. Long story short, I had to go get some coaching, some leadership coaching. I found a place uh, in the Midwest uh, that was for small businesses. I lied about my uh, annual income. I think it was like twenty million or less, and I was might have might have been about seven hundred million at the time. <laughs> yeah, I make, I make twenty million. It's a family business. They, they let me in, and I learned a lot of the basics of leadership um, at scale, and um, it really helped me a lot. And then I just always had a good COO. I always knew that I was more creative, more about the product, and I needed people who were good with people. I always had a strong COO by my side, usually much older than me, more seasoned, maybe from the corporate world. Um, It's a plus if they have failed at a small business before because they understand my role and why I'm good at what I do. We know our lanes. and They manage people. I manage product. And I've always had really, really good good partners there. And you're right. I mean, these people, when you get that, when you get really big and successful, you get this executive team, this small circle of leaders 
they're going to be elite. They are amazing leaders, right? And they want to work for an even more amazing leader, and that's going to be you. And they're like, and if you're humble about it, that's to them. Why are you going to be humble? Now I can't brag to my friends about you. What does that say about me if I work for somebody who's humble? So you understand. You have to understand that motivation. These are like type A killers that are going to be your when you're big. And you can't let that get to your head. You have to understand that that is their motivation. They're going to pump you up and say, "You're you're so smart. You're you're brilliant, man." That's for them, not you. And you have to remember that and keep them humble and say, nah, you just don't take it. Don't drink your own Kool-Aid. Uh, and then I've, I found that having those really good performers and operators never drinking their Kool-Aid or believing their publicity about you, s- staying humble, it worked out well for us. It helped us really, really well over the years. Yeah, I think that's an apt description of MailChimp a level of wild success with humility and you don't see that in many companies thank you so i want to wrap with one final question for you it's uh not about business it's actually more about maybe your personal interests but this is a question that ran fish and i was interviewing him a couple weeks ago and um he he introduced and i thought it was a good one what's one topic right now that if someone started talking about it at a dinner party or a gathering that you just could not stop talking about uh, so one of the things that happens to you uh, if you've been a founder and CEO for 20-something years and then you sell is you realize for the last 20 years, no matter how authentic you were to yourself, which I always was, it was always drama. Being a leader, is it's drama, it's acting. And then you forget who you are. Like I talked earlier about forgetting your hobbies, but you can actually completely forget who you are. And so I've been doing a deep dive into my own brain and my own personality and just personality uh, research is mm. super fascinating. Uh, I had a coach who had me take an Enneagram personality test. Any of you heard about that or I've done that? I've taken it. Yeah. It's great. What are you? What number are you? I forget now. Oh, five. I'm a five. Six, five, four. Yeah. Five. I'm a five. Too. Yeah. The logician. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So, see. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, that I could talk about all night. And I advise it to all of you to figure that out. And it'll really tell you what your strengths and weaknesses are and maybe help you pair out with a COO or a co-founder or something. It's, or if you have a spouse, uh, it's been really useful. Yeah. Warm hand for